Good evening, friends. I feel like I can really call you friends now. There's a sense of um, when we arrived here, the part two teaching team, just under five weeks ago, I was looking forward to getting to know you, getting to know your experience and your stories. And now there's a sense of, oh, right, I really know more of the, the beings that I'm sitting with in this hall. So Thanksgiving, being on retreat at IMS for Thanksgiving. I so appreciate the spirit of the Thanksgiving holiday, the spirit of coming together to appreciate the blessings, the good fortune in our lives, the spirit of gratitude. And I wish that the holiday was not um, associated with the landing of the Mayflower in 1620. I wish we could just have a big gratitude day without a particular historical significance, especially that one. And Annie spoke this morning about some of the mixed feelings that can come with the holiday of Thanksgiving. And I I think that the potpourri of feelings comes not just because of Thanksgiving, but also just in the experience of spending a holiday on retreat in this way. We come on retreat, we come away from, I was going to say we come away from crowds, but sometimes this can feel like a crowd. We come away from the busyness of daily life to be and to practice and to come into a particular kind of seclusion, a kind of aloneness that can also include within it loneliness. Some of you have maybe thought today about other people you know, friends or families, and watching football and having turkey with stuffing and uh, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, all those different things. It's it's a stance of um, how natural it is to miss being with loved ones on a day like today and also the capacity to really find joy in the retreat container because it's no mistake that you chose to be on retreat uh, over this day. I've spent a number of Thanksgivings walking the loop here at IMS practicing on this retreat or practicing at the Forest Refuge. And it's been like that for me, just kind of this, this mixed bag. And I remember one Thanksgiving walking just down the hill. I took a left out the front door and just walked um, you know, toward, toward Lover's Lane, and we call that, that stretch that is not paved Lover's Lane. <laughs> kind of a funny name for a road by retreat center, but um, I remember walking, walking in that direction and just thinking about everybody at home and what I knew they were up to, and there was just this feeling of it felt wistful for me. It felt poignant. It, it was okay, you know, but there was just this, this ache in my heart And I was sensing that, really okay with its arising, and I just started looking at what was around me and being aware of the smell in the air at this time of the year and feeling the the cool breeze on my face. And it just landed in my heart on this one particular walk that when I really got down to it, there's nowhere else I would have rather have been. There's nowhere else I actually really wanted to be. It would have been nice 
to have been with my friends and family, but as I tuned into the clarity that was present in the mind because of that period of practice, I knew that I was uh, in the right place at the right time. And also aware of the kind of aloneness that can be present in choosing to walk a different path. Because we do renounce, we do renounce coming here and today is a day when that kind of renunciation might be uh, more central in your experience. So the holiday, Thanksgiving actually, I've been, I've researched this holiday for a while and I'm certainly not a historian, but what I know about Thanksgiving is that in 1863, President Lincoln announced this as a day set aside for giving thanks because the nation was in the middle of a civil war and he was wanting to unify the nation and he thought that would be a way to do it. That was in 1863, but the pilgrims really get the credit with this day. Most of us are taught um, about the Mayflower landing in Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts, which is just about 103 miles away from here. And really the holiday is a mixture of myth and it's a mixture of history. And just shy of 400 years ago, there are so many idealized stories of pilgrims and native peoples coming together for the perfect harvest. And what really happened is that uh, the pilgrims arrived and they were, they were hungry, they were poor, and about half of them died within a few months of disease and of hunger. And they had no idea how to grow food here. They had no idea how to work with the soil, work with the crops, work with the climate here. And the native peoples, the Wampanoag, fed them through the winter. They took care of them and showed them how to grow food. And this is particularly noteworthy because this group of people weren't just friendly Indians. They had experienced the European slave traders raiding their villages for quite some time. They would already experienced plenty of violence in that way. But still they gave. Still they gave to the pilgrims who were in need. And that's really something that they gave freely to those who really had nothing. And among many native peoples, giving is a way to earn respect. Giving without holding back is actually a way of earning respect. In the... the um, among the Dakota, when asked to give, the answer is often, are we not Dakota and alive? When asked to give, are we not Dakota and alive? So it's believed that by giving more, there would be enough for all. That giving would actually be the, the sense of um, abundance, of generosity, not so much from how much one has, but from the offering itself. Bonnie and I talk about this sometimes because in the teacher housing, I live next to Bonnie, and let me tell you, I have all this great food pretty much delivered every day. You know, brie with pepper jelly and apple pie, you name it, Bonnie's always <laughs> giving me food. <laughs> every day, lots of it. And um, <laughs> it's 
great that I said to her one day, I said, Bonnie, like, do you feel like you always have to be giving to me? And she says, no, 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 this is just the way we are. You know, this is, this is how most people I spend my time with. You know, this is how we are. And I notice how I feel with that. There's just this joy and this excitement. I'd feel that even if I wasn't getting all this food every day. But it's just, it is a way of um, taking joy in the relational quality through the act of giving and the act of receiving. So that's what I'm talking about tonight. I'm mostly going to talk about gratitude. Bonnie already gave a beautiful talk on generosity. But gratitude and generosity are these qualities that are, that are present, that are natural to us when the mind and heart are not clouded. And the capacity to feel gratitude, I, I don't mean to talk about gratitude like a Hallmark card. Um, you know, there's this kind of new age way of thinking, oh, just be grateful, everything will be okay. And so the kind of gratitude I'm talking about is not a kind of liberation through positive thinking. It's not nicing it up. Uh, Really connecting with the quality of gratitude has a lot to do with our capacity for happiness, actually. And generosity, when we understand the interconnectedness that is true for ourselves and through all of life, you know, generosity becomes the only thing that really makes sense. And the two go together. Gratitude and generosity, there's a giver and a receiver when we're talking on a conventional level. This is a poem by the great Dharma poet Mary Oliver. It's called Philip's Birthday. I gave to a friend that I care for deeply, something that I loved. It was only a small, extremely shapely bone that came from the ear of a whale. It hurt a little to give it away. The next morning, I went out as usual at sunrise, and there in the harbor was a swan. I don't know what he or she was doing there, but the beauty of it was gift. Do you see what I mean? You give and you are given. You give and you are given. It's like breathing. How many times are we aware of an in-breath and an out-breath? Just the act of breathing. There's not an out-breath without an in-breath. We're taking in the environment. We are... um, breathing out in the environment. The two go together, this flow of giving and receiving. And when we really open to this flow, it connects us with life. It connects us with the flow of our lives. This is such a different message than the kind of contraction of a sense of self that is narrow and that is oriented around me and mine. So really appreciating the gifts in your life and sharing them really counters our tendency to hold ourselves as separate in a fundamental way. This practice, we guard the sense doors, we practice renunciation, we're asking you not to talk to one another or engage too much, but even in this environment of renunciation, there is so much relationship. Our practice is relational. 
It's important not to forget in this environment just how relational our practice is, just how much we impact one another. Can you think of a person, a person who's truly happy? Can you think of a person who's truly happy, who is not in touch with gratitude? When I think of the happiest people I know, people who are happy not just because they have, you know, lots of money and good health and the capacity to have the next pleasant experience, but people who are happy deep inside. There's a capacity to find what is worth gra- what is worth being grateful for to find it it's actually an orientation of the heart more than it is a set of external conditions and the happiness comes from not only the gratitude but from the way when we are grateful and when we are generous we are participating in life more fully we're tasting life more fully there's a there's a more an enlarged sense of being an enlarged sense of sangha, an enlarged sense of being. So Ajahn Su, um, Sumedho says that this practice is not to open our hearts. This practice is to train our hearts. It's to train our hearts in the direction of relatedness, in the direction of empathy, in the direction of responsiveness. The Buddha taught that gratitude is actually one of the highest protections against negativity in the human mind. And just just take a moment as you're sitting here, bring, bring to mind one thing. It can be a small thing, just one thing you're grateful for. Something that's, that's here for you. Just one thing you're grateful for. And as you do this, notice what happens in the body. Notice if your belly feels fuller, if your heart might soften, relax a little. There may be a sense of enoughness or a sense of brightening in the mind. It's good to just know how it feels, how it feels in the body to have a sense of gratitude. I wonder if the Buddha spoke about gratitude as a protection because in a moment of gratitude we're not feeding our capacity for dissatisfaction. And the capacity for dissatisfaction for us as human beings, it's endless. It's tenacious. We can always find something to be dissatisfied about. So there's this choice. Do you want to view the glass as half full or half empty? because the glass will never be completely full because of greed in the mind. So it's helpful to train, to train yourselves to linger in the gratitude a little bit and to see it, to be open 
to this natural capacity that we have. Because when we're developing gratitude, it means that we stop long enough to pay attention. We're, we're noticing relationship. Before I do interviews in the morning, I have this routine. I go and I get a cup of tea. And I usually put one tea bag of chamomile and one tea bag of ginger in there. <coughs> Sometimes I just do chamomile. But you might think about, because many of you probably make a, f- a few cups of tea every day, just that. You know, starting with the tea, somebody put that tea, somebody, the tea stalkers, stock the tea in those plastic containers, some of you, thank you. And then the plants that are inside the tea bags. Somewhere that chamomile was grown at the right temperature and it was watered and the sun shone down upon the chamomile. Somehow the chamomile was picked and harvested and dried. Somehow it was put into these tea bags that were then transported probably partly by land, by ground, probably partly by air. They found, you know, these little tea flowers, these little chamomile flowers found their way to IMS because one of our kitchen managers thought ahead to order them so that you could have your tea. It's just in the tea bag. There's a lot going on just in a tea bag when we really pay attention. You know, and then the hot water just being able to turn on this water machine and have hot water be right there at your fingertips. And all that it actually takes to make hot water be available to us like that when we want it. So in having a cup of tea, you know, you can speed through and have a cup of tea and taste it. Or you might pause and just think about all of the lives actually and all of the beings that go into the experience of you having a cup of tea during the three-month course at IMS. It's is a connecting with this web of life that holds us, that supports us. This is a book that when I travel to teach, I almost always take with me, called Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion by Gregory Boyle. Do any of you know this book? Have you heard of it? Yeah. It's, it's just a book filled with these wonderful stories. Gregory Boyle, is a, he's a Jesuit priest, and he's a founder of a group in L.A. called Homeboy Industries. And this group does incredible things. They really work to, it's a gang intervention program that works to keep young men and women um, out of gang life. They work with helping to provide work, um, helping to have, have programs for people who come out of prison and need to have certain tattoos removed from their body to get work. They have a bakery. But uh, this man, Gregory Boyle, who wrote the book about his experience working with this population, he has so many stories and he has seen a great deal of suffering. The lives of some of the characters, the real world characters that he shares about in this book, it's just... Um, it's quite moving, actually, what, some of what these people endure and some of the beauty that can come out of that. I'd like to just share with you a few of his words. And he, he speaks about God. That's his holding of his, his spiritual path. He says, as we bask in God's attention, our eyes adjust to the, the light and we begin to see as God does. Then, quite unexpectedly, we discover what Mary Oliver calls the music with nothing playing. 
It's an essential tenet of Buddhism that we can begin to change the world first by changing how we look at the world. The Second Vatican Council Fathers simply decided to change the opening words of their groundbreaking encyclical, Gaudium et Space. Originally, it read, speaking of the world, the grief and the anguish. Like, how's that to start out? The grief and the anguish. Then, they just decided to cross out those words and famously inserted instead the joy and the hope. No new data had rushed in on them, and the world hadn't changed suddenly. They just chose in a heartbeat to see the world differently. They hadn't embraced all of a sudden Pollyannaism, but they had just put on a new set of eyewear. One of my favorite examples of this came from a 16-year-old homie and no doubt budding Buddhist Lorenzo. He settled into a chair in front of my desk, and when I looked up, I saw he had scratches all over his face, and his two forearms were raspberry with scrapes. He was pretty much beat up, and I presumed he'd had an encounter with rivals. My God, I say to him, what happened to you? Lorenzo, nonchalant and unbothered, points at his numerous red markings and scabs and dismisses it all with glee. Oh, this? My bike was teaching me how to fly. (laughs) Music with nothing playing. So it really matters, you know, the the lens through which we see. When we're seeing through greed, when we're seeing through joy, when we're seeing through wisdom. And so, in order to study our relationship to gratitude, we also need to know what gets in the way of gratitude. The Buddha said there's two kinds of rare people, those who make the initiative to give and those who are grateful. I don't know about you, but I, in my life, have spent a lot more time thinking about giving than actually being grateful. You know, somehow I think about giving as a practice, but being grateful as an equal practice. And a few things, a few um, ways of perceiving that block gratitude I just would like to talk about. And the first one is an attachment to being self-reliant. I can speak about this because growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, let me tell you, I learned how to be self-reliant. There's a sense that um, the culture is that you are responsible for yourself, go do it on your own, make the most of your life, help others, but don't ever be the one in the position who needs to be helped. So in my family, self-reliance was like a form of God. It was almost like a religion. And when we are really hooked on self-reliance, it sets up a duality, doesn't it? It sets up this identification of, of giver and receiver. So of course, in a relative sense, there's always a giver and a receiver. But when we look more deeply, it's not like that. I'll say more about that. So when we are attached to being self-reliant, we might be receiving but not actually connected to the web of life in the way that's possible. I had a great good fortune for a number of years in Durango to live in a, in a really beautiful home that someone in our sangha offered to me. This home was 
much more luxurious and much more fancy than how I would have been living if this home hadn't been offered to me. And some years ago, I just moved from this place in August, but I lived there for a number of years. And before moving into this lovely space, I was, I was ending a relationship and I put out an email to just a whole bunch of people saying, I, you know, I'm looking for a place to live. And I just wanted something simple. I was traveling and practicing a lot of retreat practice. And I just said, I just want, you know, I'm thinking a room, a tiny kitchen, a bed, something like that. And, and I heard back from this, this woman I knew from our sangha. And she said, oh, Erin, you know, I have a place. I have a condo. Why don't you take it? And I, I said, great. And she said, how much can you pay? And I offered her some I don't even, it was some modest amount. And she said, great, okay, great. She said, here's the address, meet me there in 15 minutes. And I said, okay. And I walked over and I knocked on the door and she opened the door and she said, come on in. And it was really nice. And then we just kept going and going and going. It was like huge, you know, all these rooms. And we went to the far edge of this condo, which is actually a palace, and there's the river and all these windows. <laughs> and I felt so embarrassed that I'd said to her, oh, you know, I'm just going to pay this small amount because the property was, you know, really, really nice. And, um, and she said, just pay me what you can every month. You know, if you can't pay rent, it's no problem, Erin. You know, just consider it yours. And I, uh, <laughs> I got really uncomfortable. <laughs> I loved it, though. I have to tell you, I got used to living there. And I did not mind that kitchen, that's for sure. But um, um, I noticed that I was doing this pattern every time I would see this woman who offered it to me. And I would either go into this, this pattern of just thanking her profusely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, you know, it's just kind of over the top, actually. And I would either do that, or if something about the condo would come up, I would go into this um, feeling of being very speedy and racy and wanting to change the subject immediately. And I was aware that I was in this somewhat unusual behavior with her. And at the same time, I noticed that when I was at home, and this is you know after living there probably a year and a half or so, when I really tuned into my relationship to it, there were, there were these times when I just had this little bit of... Um, tension in the body, the sense of just holding back a little bit. Like I wasn't completely receiving this great gift that had been just put right in my lap. And I realized what I was doing. And I began to just shift the behavior and sit with the discomfort when I would see her and something about the condo would come up. Rather than being speedy and changing the subject, I just would say one time, not 10 times, thank you. I'm so grateful for this gift in my, in my life. And she was very clear that she was offering this to me because it was a way of supporting my work in the Dharma. And it was such a process for me to be able to receive it entirely. Not just say, sure, I'll live there, but to actually take into my heart the presence of the gift in her presence. And I just noticed as it shifted for me, um, we both relaxed a lot. She seemed more satisfied too. And it surprised me how much of a process it was to receive this gift that was absolutely freely given because of my own tendency towards self-reliance. Can you relate to this a little bit? 
So when I received it fully, she, she received um, the pleasure of, of the gratitude, really from a more grounded and connected place. So there can be a sense that we need to earn something to really be grateful for it, that we need to somehow earn. You know, we don't earn the sunshine. We don't earn the capacity to hear this Dharma talk. You know, in being here, sure, many of you have worked and put in, well, we know you've put in effort during your time here practicing, but you didn't completely earn being here. Somehow, someone somewhere has supported each of you in being here. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, whether it's people at home or whether it's all the volunteers or the scholarship fund. Um, we are all supported in being here. Another, another piece that can get in the way, that can be an obstacle to opening that grateful heart is, is a feeling of entitlement. And this is one that I think people on a Buddhist path often really don't want to admit, don't want to think that I could be somebody in the Dharma with entitlement. We don't like to see it in ourselves. And a sense of entitlement is a sense of, well, I should be given to. I expect it, of course. I'm so great, of course I should be given to. And with the places of entitlement, the more that where we're entitled becomes conscious, the more that we actually can um, see it, the less it drives our behavior and perception. So I encourage you to just have on your radar screen, where is entitlement up for you? Because if we're honest, it's, it's, it's at work. It's at work. And when we're entitled, nothing is really a gift because the expectation gets in the way. When something's expected, it's not really received in a way that brings gratitude. And there can be a feeling of living a life kind of like, oh, you know, I'm being cheated. Just to notice where entitlement might come up for you. Sometimes it happens around food. Sometimes it can happen around living conditions or time with the teachers. Just notice where, where does entitlement come up for you? The sense of being a little more special. The kind of mana. It's really a form of mana that Bonnie talked about. And in terms of the entitlement, we, we have absorbed, maybe not all of you, but many people living in this country, I think it's fair to say, have absorbed a cultural message uh, of entitlement McDonald's restaurants, you know, their ad campaign, they built this huge ad campaign around the slogan, you deserve a break today. And Mercedes-Benz, in the 1990s, <laughs> this ad campaign, you owe it to yourself to buy a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is what we see, and so we, we get bombarded with these messages that we are such fantastic people, and we deserve an equally as fantastic way of living. Renee Brown, a lot of you probably know her. She's done great work with shame and vulnerability. She gives these great TED Talks. And she says, what separates privilege from entitlement is gratitude. 
Gratitude separates privilege from entitlement. When we're entitled, we're willing to walk all over it, all over everybody to get what we think is ours. I could go on and on and on about the implications of, of this mind state of entitlement to um, the planet, for example, the shared living earth. But with entitlement, what, what is being missed oftentimes is the suffering that lives in that wanting. You know, just this feeling of, I should have this, and the righteousness, the kind of contraction and separateness that comes from that. If you really sit with what's underneath there, that happiness comes from getting the next thing, as we've talked about over and over again. When we actually touch into what's in there, there's usually a feeling of insufficiency, of loss, or of sadness. And that's really the place to touch, the place to go. Because deserving, this idea of I deserve, is mostly a judgment that's based in duality. It's based in some measure of othering. When we, when we know our deepest nature, deserving isn't really part of the picture. Entitlement isn't so much part of the picture. This is one of my, I think my favorite Dharma quotes of all time from Ajahn Buddhadasa, great Thai forest teacher. He says, we're giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself, they do not really belong to us. When we see that, instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we find a great freedom. This is the liberation the Buddha promised. It is all borrowed. When we look closely, it is these bodies made of stardust, literally. So I think this is the qualities of gratitude and generosity are part of why I, I am so happy spending time in Buddhist cultures and part of why Buddhist cultures really inspire me so much. You know, this culture of metadonna, a metadonna culture. We're sitting right here in a fairly thriving community, actually, grounded in generosity, gratitude, metta and dana. And the more that we can just tune into that beauty, the more that this way of living can be nourished and can be sustained. The blessings. I used, to, I used to hear the word bless and I would just uh, cringe a little bit because I was thinking of blessings as being like a patriarchal God in the sky with a wand or something and, and a, that if I you know, did something that was good, I would get a blessing or something. And that if I was bad, somehow there wouldn't be a blessing. But um, bless really means to 
express or to feel gratitude, tuning into the blessings in your life. And so we might notice blessings as that which is beneficial to us in our lives. It comes from the old English word blood. And I think to be aware of the presence of blessings is really as a, we, we need it like our bodies need blood. And so you might consider as you're sitting here today on Thanksgiving, you know, we are sitting quite literally in a field of blessings. Not just these, these physical conditions, but the lineage, the blessings of the lineage, people who have been doing this practice for 2,600 years and who have included in their metta prayers throughout time, you know, metaphor beings not yet born. People who in Asia are doing metta for beings in all directions, including us. And really, people from all over the earth hold this three-month course at IMS every fall. What, what we're doing here, each of, each of us really, is held in such a larger way than just the boundaries of this room. People all over the world know that this course is going on. And um, it's important to remember that sometimes. Things can become so small, just the larger holding. In the Mangalam Sutta, the Buddha talks about several blessings, and I just want to share this with you. I think it's been shared another time on this retreat, but it's, it's good, so I'm going to share it again. And as I go through these, you might just uh, tune in to how many of these are, are true for you during your time on retreat now, not just in your life as abstractions, but how many of these are actually true for you in one way or another, today, for example. And I'm going to translate these um, in my own language a little bit. Uh, but the Mangalam, Mahamangala Sutta, the Buddha was, was addressed by a, a deity. This was a radiant, a luminous deity who came to the Buddha and said to the Buddha, uh, that many deities and people wanting to be happy have pondered on this question of blessings. And he said to the Buddha, excuse me, I don't know the gender of the deity. The deity said to the Buddha, pray tell me what the highest blessings are. And here's what, here's what the Buddha said. To spend time in the company of wise people and to honor those who are worthy. To live in a place that is good for you and to do good deeds, and to keep yourself going in the right direction. To be well-educated, to develop your skills, to train yourself in discipline, to use words carefully and beautifully. To take good care of your mother and father, to cherish your partner and children if you have them and to engage in a livelihood that is non-harming. To give generously to others, to live with integrity, and to care for others, especially those you consider to be your family. To avoid doing harm, to be careful with intoxicants, to develop wholesome states of mind. To be respectful, humble, grateful, 
and to regularly bring spiritual teachings into your life. To be patient and open to learning, to be in touch with people on a spiritual path or to discuss spiritual teachings. To live simply, to understand the deepest truth and to realize the highest freedom and happiness. To develop a mind that is steady and unswayed by the vicissitudes of life. And the Buddha says, those who act in these ways cannot be dragged down. Everywhere they go, they find well-being. So these are, that's the discourse on the highest blessings. We're sitting in a lot of this, aren't we? I mean, a lot of these blessings are exactly what um, is provided here in this container together. M.J. Ryan says, gratitude is like a flashlight. It lights up what is already there. You don't necessarily have anything more or different, but suddenly you can actually see what is. And because you can see, you no longer take it for granted. (coughs) So this is something that, if you've ever had aversion toward another yogi, because that happens when we live in close quarters sometimes, and it can be challenging. It can be quite challenging to be living in close quarters when if you find that your mind's getting really caught or your system's having a lot of agitation, just to uh, tune into what's already here. You know, just to look for what's beautiful, to look for what's not wrong can be its own meditation. Not just what's wrong, but to actually find the the what's not wrong meditation. And you might consider when you bow, is gratitude part of your bow? Is bowing something that you're doing with full awareness, with clear comprehension? I know every time I bow, gratitude is in one hand and generosity is in in the other hand in a certain way. You know, there's gratitude for the teachings, the refuges, And there's generosity just in the wish that this practice is of benefit to all beings. Now consider, is that any part of your act when you bow? What's happening for you when you bow? So, I've been aware of all the the difficult news that's out there in our world. And it's good to hear good news too. This is a story that really is such a story of gratitude and generosity and what's possible when we really open our hearts. This is from a section of of a weekly called The Week (laughs) from It Wasn't All Bad. When Kayla Millard (coughs) died in an ATV accident in 2004, his parents decided to donate his organs. That decision wound up saving the life of Janice McKinnon's 19-year-old son who needed a new pancreas to treat his type 1 diabetes. The two families went on to become friends, and when Calum's father was recently diagnosed with kidney failure, Janice volunteered to become a donor. 
You say thank you when someone opens a door for you, McKinnon said. There are no words to say this. So do you get this? That when the son died, the parents donated the organs to Janice McKinnon's son. And um, Janice became a donor for that man's father. It's just, it's amazing. It's just really, really beautiful. So we all have something to be uh, generous with. We all have something to offer. On retreat, if you're wanting to be generous or practice gratitude, please do it without um, making it known to other yogis directly. So leaving little presents, you don't have to do that. Um, Please don't actually be doing that. That can be disruptive to others' practices. But um, you know, a, a grateful heart is not—it's not a superficial teaching. It's um, really an expression of being responsive, of being connected, of seeing clearly. And a heart that's grateful naturally becomes generous. I was just looking at um, all of the meal dedications. You know, that's such an example of just gratitude being expressed through an act of of such beautiful generosity that we all get to see. It's another expression of this retreat being held in a larger way. Some years ago, I was... uh, I flew into Durango. This was before, before September 11th, 2001. Because I, I flew in and my backpack, I, I'd been out traveling, and um, I had this big backpack and it didn't make it on my flight. So I went home. I think my flight got in at three or something. And the airlines called me to say that my backpack had arrived. And it was, it was late at night. It was something like 11.30 at night. And I drove back out to the airport. And I went to get my big backpack and there is this woman, she was short and very small, and there's this woman, at first I couldn't quite tell what language she was speaking, but she was standing in the airport, and there were maybe three, three men who were airport employees around her talking to her, and she seemed very upset. And I got a little closer, I realized she was speaking Spanish, and I'm not quite fluent in Spanish, but I know enough to be able to communicate well enough. And so she was, yeah, speaking in a loud voice, she was crying, and I went over there, and I just started listening, and I said, what's going on here? It just was you know, a little bit concerning. And she explained to me that she thought she was going to Durango, Mexico to see her family. And she ended up in Durango, Colorado in the middle of winter, you know, in this tiny little airport, knowing nobody. And you can't really spend the night in the Durango airport. It closes. <laughs> and there's not a hotel right there in Durango. So she, she really had nowhere to go. And I was just aware of what it must have been like for her. You know, I know how it is as a woman traveling by myself in places where I felt afraid, honestly, a little vulnerable. And I was just putting together what was happening. And I was the only person in the airport. You know, everybody else had left other than the, the employees. And I thought, well, she could come home with me. And I thought, don't do that, Erin. You know nothing about this woman's life. You know, who knows what could happen? 
And I just thought, of course, I'm going to take her home. You know, of course, I'm going to take her home. But there was this, there was this um, fear, actually. There was fear for me in terms of bringing somebody that I didn't know home. And so I, I started talking to her in Spanish. And, you know, it was clear she had nowhere to go. And so she decided to come home with me. You know, she doesn't speak English. I'm this white woman she doesn't know at all. And we walk out to my old beat-up Honda. And she sits in the front seat just like, you know, t- tight. And she's kind of looking around, and I'm trying to make small talk in Spanish. We drive half an hour, and we get to my, my home, which is this, it was this tiny, my home then was like the size of Rebecca's interview room. It was cozy. <laughs> and um, I put together a bed for her, and she got on my phone, and she started making these calls to her family in Mexico. I had no idea what a bill she was running up, but I just, you know, I, I did, wasn't going to say you can't talk to your family. She was on the phone for many hours. I put in earplugs. I went to sleep. And we woke up, and I drove her back to the airport, and she got on this flight to Durango, Mexico. And I never heard from this woman again. But um, I still remember this. I still remember this story today. And I, um, I'm so glad that I followed the impulse to be generous and help her. It could have gone otherwise. I'm so glad I followed that impulse to be generous. And I noticed that as I talk about it today, I, there's meta for her. I, I wonder how she is. And um, I kind of, what I remember is, is her courage. It took some courage, actually, to come do that. And, um, and what I saw in myself was just how convincing the slew of good reasons to not be generous was. It was like I was really believing it. So as you practice gratitude and as impulses to be generous arise, sometimes in life it's helpful to just, if there's an impulse, to act on it, to not find all the ways to say no or to squelch it. You know, the, the Buddha taught about these, these three um, joys in the act of giving a gift. One is in the act of thinking about it and in the actual doing of it, and in the reflecting of it. And as I think about that story in the airport with this woman, I, um, I experience all three of those. Mostly they're reflecting on it. Punjaji says, there's no such thing as generosity. There's only the awareness of need and the natural impulse of the heart to address it. If you're hungry and your hand puts food in your mouth, you don't think of the hand as generous, do you? If people in front of you are hungry and you feed them, it's the same, isn't it? So deep generosity just comes from this kind of understanding, the interconnectedness that we come to know as the contraction of I am begins to soften. As that begins to soften, you and I are not um, inherently separate. Generosity and gratitude without giver and receiver. The Buddha really taught from this place. I'll share another story tonight, another story about an airport. <laughs> I'll close with this. This is by the Palestinian uh, Poet Naomi Nye, this is prose. This is called Gate A4. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal, 
After learning my flight had been detained for four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled on the floor and wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stopped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly. Shadowa, Shubeduk, Habiti, she goes on and on. And the minute this woman, the minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely, and she needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, you're fine. You'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son, and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane and would ride next to her on Southwest Airlines. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons, just for fun. (laughs) Then we called my dad. And she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. (laughs) Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? (laughs) This all took up about two hours, and she was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies. These are little powdered sugar, crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar. (laughs) and smiling. There is no better cookie. Then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice, and they were covered with powdered sugar too. (laughs) And I noticed my new best friend. By now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. It's such an old country traveling tradition. Always carry a plant. Always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones, and I thought, this is the world I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.